Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. And it's Thursday. It's the first Thursday of this March 2021. And as uh, you probably already know, it is Women's History Month. And we have very intentional programming here on Suncast for the month of March dating back now a couple of two or three years, I think. Thank you, Miss Tara Doyle, our good friend who insisted that we do more for not just the, the gender diversity, but the equity across the board here at Suncast several years ago, which has become our very dire intention. I'm keeping that habit up here and intention here in March, although we do very well and fairly distribute female voices throughout Suncast and increasingly more uh, equity generally throughout Suncast. So I'm grateful for all of you who have insisted throughout the years that uh, we elevate and give credence to the amazing talent we have that is not just uh, white, middle-aged male and representative of the vast majority of our energy and, and solar industries. So I just want to nod here to all of the fantastic leadership that is coming into the solar industry that just continues to blow me away. You know, it's it's well documented that companies with female leadership excel across many different metrics, not the least of which is profitability. And leadership skill is something that I personally learned more from my female bosses than, than my male bosses. And today we have someone that I'm really honored and proud to have on the show, Miss Anne Choate. Anne has been such an instrumental figure for so many organizations, public and private, across government lines, across county and state lines at ICF. And if you don't know Anne, you're in for a treat. You get to hear how someone has risen through the ranks to command a legion of climate champions within an organization like ICF and has more than 2,000 folks in the group that she runs now at ICF and her story is a fantastic one and if you'd like to hear stories just like this one well I'll encourage you to subscribe to Suncast if you're new here please listen through the entirety of this episode before you do that obviously and if you do listen all the way through I would so love it if you would give us an honest rating and review in iTunes or whatever app you are using, it means the world to us and it also helps others find Suncast. You can find more of these, not just in your podcast player, but over at mysuncast.com. In fact, um, 350 more of these founder stories and startup advice in the clean tech and climate tech transition that we are all experiencing. But for now, you can get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior Climate Champion, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, as promised, today we're going to have a wide-ranging conversation that will touch on not just the career and growth of an energy leader and thought leader in our industry, but the trajectory many of you have considered, the dance between consulting and corporate life, nonprofit, working for government, etc. Today's guest, Ann Choate, leads ICF's Energy Environment and Infrastructure Operating Group. With nearly 2,000 people under her leadership, she has purview over professionals looking at energy markets, transportation, energy efficiency, environmental planning, conservation, and of course, climate change. And I'm so glad to finally have you on Suncast, and I'm looking forward to this discussion. Welcome to Suncast. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. And we share uh, a few things in common, namely uh, a love for the food and culture here in 
little old Durham, North Carolina, as you began your journey towards what has become what I know to be a, a fulfilling and, and wide ranging career solving the climate crisis in one way or the other. I'd love to hear where it spawned from as you were beginning your journey. Where did the germ of an idea that led to the career you now enjoy come from? Okay, well, thanks for asking. Yeah, it's true. I spent a lot of time in Durham, like you do now, and I do miss, I miss the beer and I miss the food for sure. When I was there, I was focused on science and math, and I thought that I would actually go into the medical field. So I volunteered at the hospital. And ironically, the politics in the hospital turned me towards working on other types of environmental issues and actually getting away from medicine and going more towards what ultimately led to climate change. Because to me, science was pretty cut and dried and apolitical. That was in my 20-year-old mind. Obviously, in my you know 47-year-old mind, I realized this is a highly politicized issue at times. That's where it started and where I got excited about climate change. Have you always invested in the science side of your career search? Yeah, I would say I was really excited in the science part because, again, it, it seemed like it was, I'm a pretty apolitical person, so it seemed like it was the kind of thing where you could, if you did the research, if you crunched the numbers, you could come up with the answer. And I liked that. I liked the certainty of it. Ironically, what I have really enjoyed and why the career has been so fulfilling has been because of the complexity and the interdependencies across sectors and the really understanding the depth of coordination and complication that climate change brings. And I think at the end of my my Duke career, I actually spent some time working at EPA and didn't stay there because I was offered a job at ICF to work on climate change. And I felt like while staying at EPA at that time at the Office of Air Quality Planning and Standards, focusing on something specific like mercury and fish would be interesting and fulfilling. I felt like climate change sounded so complicated and I and I was worried that I would get bored if I had too narrow a scope. And so in 1995, I moved to DC and started working on climate change. And turns out there was more than enough to do. <laughs> 25 years later, we haven't solved the problem. You know, I wonder. For those who maybe are just getting their uh, their feet wet in climate change, was was it even referred to in the mid '90s as climate change? Was there a career path that you were pursuing? No, there was not a career path I was pursuing that was called climate change. I was, as I said, I had I was taking all the pre med courses, so I had a lot of science, and I was also taking at that time Duke had an environmental policy and science degree. And so you could get a degree in environmental science and policy, and that degree required that you also took statistics and economics and public policy. It actually helped to round out the science with a lot of the turned out to be very important components of my future career. So understanding the economic aspects of climate change, understanding the you know geomorphology, understanding engineering. And so you know as those sort of those foundational building blocks, I didn't realize how important they would become until I actually got into the career that I was in. We definitely talked about global warming. We definitely talked about barrier island migration. We we marched over dunes in North Carolina with a guy named Dr. Oren Pilkey, who's famous in Durham and all over the all over NPR. You know, we learned a lot about aspects of of what you would now call climate change, but we weren't referring to it as that. For those who are perhaps unfamiliar with ICF and organizations like it, could you frame the work that ICF is engaged in. And I'd love to know perhaps how the, even that has evolved as an organization from the time since you joined in the 90s. So I joined in the 90s into a group called the Global Environmental Issues Group. And that Global Environmental Issues Group was working on two major things. One was global warming and one was essentially the ozone hole and how you could repair the ozone hole and the Montreal Protocol, which was put in place, much like the Paris agreement to address an international problem that we couldn't solve. The U.S. couldn't solve that problem on their own. And so I joined to focus on those two problems. At that time, the climate side of the work that we did was much about, it was about policy. It was about figuring out how you would do greenhouse gas accounting. So accounting for emissions of things like carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide and methane. 
from like 50 some sources. And at the time, we ICF experts became the authors of some of those first approaches to a greenhouse gas accounting. So when the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change established reporting and accounting guidelines, a lot of those were either led by us or we had a hand in helping to to figure out what those best practices would be. So the work was much more around the science and the accounting and the engineering and Excel files and a lot of data crunching, whereas our energy business at the time at ICF was quite separate, right? So in the energy business at ICF, we were doing, we were supporting oil and gas companies, we were supporting energy utilities, we were, you know, doing transactional support. And so it's over time that those practices, you know, most recently in the last year, where those practices and those activities have come together as the nature of the clients and the nature of the, the solutions and the, the questions that, the, that they want answers that our clients are asking us are so multidisciplinary and also cut across private and public sector. They cut across international, federal, state and local jurisdictional boundaries. And they also, you know, they they require that multidisciplinary lens. So understanding economics, understanding social aspects, as well as science. We talked uh, a little bit when you and I were getting to know one another about how sometimes you fall into a career, you didn't necessarily go to ICF expecting to be there two decades. You mentioned being at Duke and anyone who takes a peek at your LinkedIn is going to see that you also did a master's in environmental science at Johns Hopkins. At what point in that career growth, three to five years, it looks like you were uh, at ICF before you did end up going to Johns Hopkins. Was it apparent that there were some skills gaps that you needed to fill and how did going back and getting that master's help you begin to really focus in on what the next at least five, maybe 15 years would look like? So it's interesting you ask. I was hell-bent on leaving ICF after two or three years. So I was going to go there. I was going to spend two years, maybe three. And then I would go back to probably business school because my intent was to go into the business world and to try to solve, you know, or sort of address some of these environmental type issues, especially climate. After about two years, I felt like I finally understood what consulting was. I finally understood that it allowed me this ability to sort of be like a hummingbird insofar as I would get a really meaty assignment working for the National Park Service on something. And then I would take what I had learned from that and I would take that the meat and the interest and the sort of like the the good parts of that assignment. And I could take that to a private sector to Alcan or to, you know, I could basically design tools or frameworks that could have this tremendous impact because you I wasn't working for one company. I was working for many companies. I was working for federal agencies. I was working for state and local governments. And I had this this feeling that the impact was much greater. And so when you learn something, when we learn something, that, that lesson or that best practice then had this multiplier effect. So I went back to Johns Hopkins because the field was changing so fast and we needed to understand more about carbon cycling in soils. I was de- I was developing models about how carbon would move through soils, how nitrous oxide would move through agricultural lands, and again, still developing these accounting guidelines that were going to be used both you know, domestically, but also internationally. And so I thought I better go to graduate school so that I can really get better at understanding those kinds of things, you know, how to do better in those kinds of things, and also how to use new technology, things like LIDAR and radar for understanding Carbon, you know, the carbon and histosols, which are like high carbon soils. So things like that. And it, it felt like, okay, well, I'm I'm managing people, I'm doing really interesting work, I'm having this multiplier effect. Maybe I just shore up on some of these technical skills that are clearly going to be important, like within the next five years. That's how it happened. <laughs> yeah, I've heard you talk a lot about modeling. I do feel like there are, there's a certain aspect where a lot of work that goes into climate change has to do with modeling. So I want to ask what may on the surface seem like a totally pedestrian question, but what should someone who's not a scientist, who's not a financial analyst, understand about the nature of modeling? What is it? Is it something that's done inside of an Excel spreadsheet? I mean, I'm going to pretend that I don't know anything about it for a moment so that you can help someone, maybe even a consumer who's trying to listen here and and figure out what it is that you do to help the city of New York or the state uh, of California figure out how to model things correctly? So, you know, modeling is a simple word that means a lot of things, 
And I can tell you that one thing it means is that you are definitely going to get it wrong because it's not, <laughs> it's not ever, a no, you know, no, no tool or model is going to give you the exact right answer. But what we try to do is we try to utilize appropriate models, different, you know, sometimes it's visual basics, sometimes it's, you know, it's Excel, sometimes it's more sophisticated tools. And those tools then get applied and visualization tools now become even, even more important. They're not the model, but they're how you comp- you explain what the model's telling you. And so we use those tools to basically educate and to explain what we're seeing, but also we use those tools because we know they're not, they're not forecasts, they're projections, right? Oftentimes it's a projection. And so what's important about that is understanding, and I'm big on this, is understanding can we figure out what the guardrails are? Can we figure, can we play some scenarios through this model and understand what would the high and the low be, you know, and what would the, what would the inflection points be? So is it an inflection point at a particular year where we have a goal and we need to figure out how we're going to get to that goal, whether it's an, you know, um, 80 by 50 or whatever, that type of a redu- carbon reduction goal, for example, working with energy utilities, understanding and modeling what's happening behind the meter and then what's happening in front of the meter and how that relates to you know, the utilities capacity, but also their carbon reduction goals and also, you know, what that means for their demand side management programs and what their customers are are demanding from them. So it's those models can be used in a lot of different ways. Obviously there's not one model. It's I mean, we we ourselves have hundreds of models that we use. But I think the importance of the model is understanding, making sure that you use the right tool for a particular question and making sure that you're transparent about the assumptions that goes in that goes into those making sure you're transparent about what you know and what you don't know, and then trying, in my opinion, to to focus on those scenarios. That became very important for us when we were doing resiliency-related modeling for utilities, for example. Pardon the interruption. I just want to ask you a question. If you've been listening for the past few weeks, then you've no doubt heard about the unbelievable offer from our friends over at Endium. So what's holding you back? Many of you have gone over to the site. Dozens have filled out the form. But if you're anything like me, you've probably left it open as a tab. And you're still holding back. I can't express to you enough how unbelievable this offer is. Get free advice to tune up your Salesforce process from a certified Salesforce MVP. One of the top ranked in the world. So why are you hesitating? Get on it. Go back, fill out that form. Get free advice from Geraldine Gray, founder and CEO of Indium. If you didn't listen to her episode number 339, then go take a peek at that episode and better understand what you are missing in your process and how you can truly transform your solar sales process in particular. If you're looking at how to implement Salesforce as a CRM, or if you're trying to really ratchet up your game and implement a broader marketing strategy on the heels of Salesforce. Well, then you, my friend, need to head over to mysuncast.com and click on the Indium logo that will take you to their special Suncast audience offer. It's only for us, and this is special for you. It's a free assessment. I can't imagine why you'd say no to that. It's just one more way that we add additional value for you here as a listener to Suncast. So thank you for tuning in. Hey, for those of you who might have missed it, on Tuesday, we had an episode with Amanda Rico. That was Tuesday, March 1st, 2021, where we got into the deep insights that Amanda, a resume writing expert, shared all about how to transition in your career. If that interests you and you missed that episode, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. If you listened to that episode and you're still trying to wrap your head around the transferable skills, well, that's one of the elements of our forthcoming mission-minded coaching program. And and Amanda and I are giving away some of that content in next Wednesday's workshop, all about transferable skills. You can find out more over at mysuncast.com. You'll, of course, see the Transferable Skills Workshop listed under our events. I hope that you will take a chance and register for that. It is free to you, and you can learn more as well about our forthcoming coaching program that helps folks just like you figure out how to level up or transition into the clean energy industry. It's on the tip of everyone's 
mind lately with the wellspring of opportunity flowing through the latest administration change here in the United States. This is just something that is reserved for the United States. Maybe you're global and you're trying to figure this out for wherever you are in the world. Trust me, the skills we're going to teach are transferable in any language or country. So I hope you'll show up and hang out with us next Wednesday, March 10th at 1230 Pacific. You can find out more on my LinkedIn or at mysuncast.com. You know, for the non-quants, I mean, really modeling is taking as many inputs as you believe necessary, as you call them, uh, you refer to them as assumptions. They're inputs into a financial calculation so that we can run scenarios and try to forecast what's going to happen. Is that another accurate way to say it? Yeah, I think that I think you take a combination of things. There are data inputs that are not assumptions, right? That, that mm-hmm. are fixed. Yeah. And then there are assumptions that are layered on top. And then there are the calculations that you use, right? And then there's what you do with it. So I feel like, you know, there's there's a lot of room for error along that way. Parts. There's a lot of room yep. for interpretation. <laughs> yeah. So the, I, that's beautiful because not only do you have the whole body of work that is creating the calculations, but then what do you do with it afterwards? This is kind of like trying to interpret how to make an action plan around the whole book project drawdown, right? There's a, it's a mixed bag of, uh, of what came, what it, what went into it. How does it apply to what I'm doing? And what I want folks to understand is how the work that folks at, in your team at ICF in particular do helps guide the fundamental leadership at government levels, at state levels, at corporate levels of decision-making that are impacting the way our industry is going to thrive and succeed if we're going to be ahead behind, you have been involved in some really fun projects. It's notable that you helped a team lead a team, I believe, that supported AB32. All of our California friends will recognize AB32 as a greenhouse gas initiative for California. Effectively helped figure out how to cost effectively develop this inventory. I'd love to hear a little more about that. I'd love to hear some about the work that I know that you were instrumental in around New York City discussing how to mitigate disasters, just to get two examples of the breadth of work that you and your team are involved in. Well, I'll start with sort of some of the projects you mentioned, but I'll start off by saying that I think where we try to differentiate ourselves is that we are neutral from the standpoint of we're not coming to the client and saying, you should do this. What we are very good at is understanding that the client wants to go somewhere or needs to go somewhere perhaps because of regulatory requirement, perhaps because of a voluntary program, perhaps because of customer or or stakeholder pressure. And we're very good at sitting down and trying to understand, okay, what is, you know, what is a solution or um, an analysis that we could do for you to to develop that scenario or multiple scenarios, whether it's a pathway or whatever, that's going to be transparent enough for that end you know, that user, that end user or that audience, it's going to be replicable so that, you know what, things are going to change. The regulatory environment is going to change, you know, the product specifications for, you know, for appliances that use energy going to change. The way customers use electric vehicles or electrified buildings, that's going to change. And so what we need to do is build something out that is both transparent at the outset, but also replicable and, and, and able to be refreshed as the world unfolds before this client's eyes so that they can continue to refine their their response to those, you know, to that challenge. And then I think we focus a lot on what are the, what's the holistic return on investment. So if you're going to be doing this, let's think about what the full impact of this, these approaches might be, you know, what does it mean for air quality? What does it mean for um, vulnerable populations? What does it mean for, and that's where you get to some of the social justice and equity issues what does it mean from a return on investment from a financial standpoint? What risks are going to be avoided? What risks are going to be introduced? What does it mean for, for sunk costs related to cap, you know, infrastructure costs? So thinking about these things holistically, I think that that's, that's again, um, that's where we have the most fun, in air quotes. My own projects have been, you know, the most exciting ones have been ones where you have this opportunity to say, feel like a lot of people are doing the same thing. Why couldn't we build a framework? So in this case, indicator-based method for, for looking at climate risks. Why couldn't we build a framework that every state DOT could potentially use to understand their climate and their weather-related risks? Why couldn't we do that? 
you know, and, and what you then need to do the, you know, because I'm not a startup, I, <laughs> we don't, you know, we don't have money backing us to, you know, fund these good ideas, but then what you have to do is go in search of a client. And so that's something that is hard to do, but it's very rewarding because you, you basically get to choose your own adventure. If you do that, you know, you can say, I see this problem it feels like this is a problem to affect you. And if we help you, then you can sort of, you would have, again, that multiplier effect. So that's screening energy assets, that's screening transportation assets. We did a screening project for the World Bank, where we, it was the first infrastructure screening for climate risks for $2 billion worth of World Bank infrastructure. And think of the impact that that could have. This ties into the idea of infrastructure resiliency. You gave an example in a previous conversation uh, about the risk to bridges. And a lot of us might not think about day-to-day how not only climate change might affect, well, it's going to affect our our food sources, our water supply, et cetera, but it's going to affect our our infrastructure. It's a little bit of what you're talking about now. Could you give a bit bit more granularity to some of the results or some of the things that you're seeing that are illustrative of how climate change is changing the way we comprehend the economics? Yeah, sure. I mean, we did an analysis on our own. Um, It was like a it was a, a thought leadership, sort of a research project inside of ICF after some flooding that had happened in South Carolina. And what we did is we took a tool that we had built for the Federal Highway Administration and we applied it pre and post to this part of South Carolina. And we went in, we looked at the, tra- the inventory of transportation assets there, and we applied our own screening tool, essentially, to those assets, understanding what their condition was before the event. And then considering how our results compared to the the state of those assets after the event. And there were some really important things. So we look at, you know, the age of the asset. There's a design life. And in this country, most infrastructure is well beyond its design life. So you designed a bridge to last 50 to 70 years. There are many, many bridges that are 100 years, 100 plus years. And so understanding the age of the infrastructure as relates to its design life, the condition of the infrastructure And then understanding, and this is really important, especially in cities, understanding the interdependencies of that infrastructure with other infrastructure and with other critical services. So in the case of South Carolina, we found that the the framework and, and, you know, to your point earlier, the modeling, the modeling did really well. It performed perfectly with the exception of the fact that we hadn't, because this, this work had been done in the context of transportation, we hadn't looked into dams. So as soon as the dam failed, the infrastructure upstream, you know, the, the infrastructure is susceptible to that dam failure downstream. And so that, you know, and that that obviously needs to be captured. And so that understanding of like, okay, well, you could do a really good job with a transportation lens on or transportation goggles on, but you're not going to be able to, to foresee and then also to, to mitigate those risks if you don't think about, the, you know, the, the cascading risks. And so we sell the same thing with fires. And, and mudslides in California. We work for a lot of utilities and we look at, you know, this is the kind of cascading event that we were worried about was that you were going to potentially have wildfires followed by floods. And we've worked with engineering firms to understand it's not about changing the design standards for the infrastructure, whether it's energy or transportation or any other kind of infrastructure. It's about thinking about the inputs to the design and thinking about how those inputs, so like what's the 7Q10 flow? So what's the the is a, an important input for like designing a culvert. So how is that flow going to change under a climate scenario? What's the high? What's the low? And making sure that then your design is still robust to that scenario. It's like learning a new language for you probably every six to 12 months. You have to be fluent in the vernacular of many different areas. And I suppose something that I'm curious about is how now in, you know, two decades of leadership and leading such a massive piece of the organization for ICF, how do you personally stay in touch with the various data points that you need and keep fresh on the, the lingo and the, the vernacular that you need, the, the different research pieces? I mean, it seems like there's not enough time in the day for you to be able to keep abreast of it all. There is not enough time in the day for sure. You know, the reality is that it's not my job to be an expert at this point in all the details of all these projects. It's very hard for me, actually. You know, I really like to be the one on the field, you know, carrying the ball and crossing the line and spiking it. And instead, you know, then at some point you kind of move into maybe you're a quarterback. And so you get to call the plays and you get to throw the ball. 
And now I'm I'm on the I'm on the sideline, you know, I'm wearing headphones. I hope they do what I asked. <laughs> but I have to basically stand back and watch the, you know, my team perform. I think it's a lot, it's a lot about understanding and making sure you have the right people in the field. It's about making sure that you have, you know, you have set yourselves up so you have the right capabilities. So you understand, you know, what the challenges might be. You know, my job is not to understand the details of how a utility should implement a flexible load management program, but my job is to understand which utilities are going to be facing challenges in that area. How is DER, you know, impacting the grid? How are utilities going to have to start thinking about this? Is this a potential revenue source for utilities? If so, what does that mean? What do more DERs on the grid mean for resiliency? What do they mean for, you know, for customers? And, you know, how, what does that mean we're going to have to support utilities on as relates to customer behavior and managing the, the load? And so I need to understand, you know, sort of scratch the surface on those things. And I would argue that that's pretty high altitude. And so but when you, you know, when we get into the details of any one, you know, one utility or, you know, the details of a particular, you know, what's happening in, in one part, you know, one region or another, I think that that's where I have to acknowledge that I can't keep up. And rely on the team that serves. Yeah. That serves that. Seems and like these people are way better qualified to do that than I am. You know, these are energy engineers and, you know, oil and gas experts with 20 and 30 years experience. So, you know. It seems like your superpower over time has developed into identifying the intersection of these trends that are being addressed in similar ways enough across a spectrum. Utilities, as an example such that you can develop within your team a framework to scale the solutions. And then, as you just said, putting the right players on the field, making sure that the team is resourced well and, the, and that the any customer who needs ICF's input is going to have an A-team uh, strike team addressing that. Well, you've been involved in an industry that has in many ways grown up around you or maybe said a different way, you've grown up with the industry, but it has been largely male dominated as you know as is typical in traditionally engineering heavy uh, industries as as energy has been C can you share what your experience has been like and how you've successfully navigated the challenges of that dynamic over the last 20 years i think it's interesting because at icf all along i have always felt pretty much half of the population you know and even in the icf climate and energy teams i've felt well represented, you know, there were there were plenty of women who are also in those on those teams. I think that there is, I think that there's uh, perceptions at times, and I think that, that you have to work to overcome it. That the women are the ones who are going to be more thinking about, you know, the people. They're going to be wor more worried about the gender what the roles. Yeah. Are mm -hmm. They're going to support facilitation, and so it was more of an issue when I would go out, you know, on behalf of ICF or project team. Uh huh. Maybe I was a project manager and I had more senior engineers or or technical folks who I was bringing along who might be male. And the assumption would be that I was there to take notes at the meeting or I was there to facilitate. And I might be facilitating, but I also knew not to be dangerous. And that was always a surprise, you know, not always, but that was often a surprise, you know, in a room full of utility executives or a room full of um, transportation engineers, you know, state DOT transportation engineers. They welcomed me, but they didn't know why I was there. And it was very interesting to see. In some ways, it's exciting because you go from here to there in their estimation. In some ways, it's daunting because you feel like you have farther, you have to prove yourself in a different way. At ICF, I've been relieved and really happy to see that John Watson, who's our CEO, that he is definitely committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And and as far as women go, you know, it feels to me like he understands the importance of having, you know, a diversity of men and women in leadership roles. And I think that that's always been something I've seen from him. But now at that level, it's much more obvious in an ELT meeting. And so I think it's good. It's good to be in that place where you, know, you don't you don't feel like you need to, you know, in some way prove yourself. Yeah, I did a wonderful interview with Paula Gold Williams of CPS Energy, and she talks about going to Wall Street and raising, I don't know, like a two and a half billion dollar bond and all the wall, all the bankers walk in and basically take all the seats at the table. And she's just been there for 20 minutes before the meeting and sitting along the side. And then her 
representative walks in, who's basically the bank that's going to represent them and says, I'd like to introduce you to Paula. She's going to be raising a two and a half billion dollar bond. And they all immediately kind of scurried to the walls and realized that they took her, mistook her as a, as a secretary. I think we all hope that those days are in the distant, uh, the rearview mirror. I think that it's important to reflect that there are leaders like John who recognize that there's always been this challenge and stigma. And there are gender roles that we still need to break. Uh, I still strongly believe that in leadership positions like CEO, it's been proven. Paula, yourself, and and other uh, women in leadership are able to lead these largest organizations, uh, able to, in many ways, hold uh, all the pieces in in their head. Uh, I wonder if you have, through your career, spent time thinking about how to help young, diverse ca- uh, candidates find uh, sort of increasing roles of responsibility in the organization. Yeah, we, we think about that a lot. And we thought about it a lot before this year and the civil unrest that happened this year. You know, I would never, ever call myself an activist. You know, I'm a pretty like, I'm a, I, I sort of follow the rules. I, I, I chug along kind of, but when I look back on my career, I definitely have, there've been lots of inflection points. There've been lots of times when I've said, this isn't fair. And, and even in college, actually, we didn't have a lacrosse team at Duke for, for women. And I wanted to play lacrosse. <laughs> and you may know that now Duke has a lacrosse team for women. And I didn't think that Title IX or, or invoking Title IX or getting a bunch of signatures, several of us just thought it made sense for us to have a lacrosse team for women. So it wasn't that we were trying to do something that was really progressive as much as that it didn't make sense. So we thought we could fix it and we fixed it. And, you know, it's been very successful. And I think that along the way, as a woman leader in a firm like ICF, where you obviously have to be very focused on billability, you have to be very focused on, you know, managing costs of publicly traded company. You know, we're, we're responsible for being very careful and, and mindful about how we spend money. But I also feel like making sure that women can be in the workforce, can go away, can spend more than more time than I did. I spent 10 weeks for the first baby, 12 weeks for the second baby. I think the people who have come after me, who've worked for me, understand that that wasn't expected of them. And I'm so proud that we could get there. And we could get there. We got there through you know, very transparent and open relationships about what could and could not be promised at the end of that maternity leave. And then ICF as a firm evolved their policies to include men, you know, to extend the maternity time. So, you know, but it, it, it has been very rewarding to be able to say, you know, I don't feel like I didn't really push back in a very vocal way, but I subtly, because of my role, which comes with responsibility, I subtly was able to help change the culture and help you know, set an example. And then, you know, moving into this energy role, it's interesting. In India, there are a number of women in India who are energy engineers. And when we had our town halls this year about diversity, equity, and inclusion, their concerns were almost exclusively, and men and women in India, their concerns were almost exclusively about how we could make it more palatable, more, more doable for female technical staff in India to basically live up to the expectations of family and you know, in-laws and you know, partners and children and the community at large in India and still be an ICF, you know, energy expert. So in the US, we are focused very much on diversity, equity, inclusion as it relates to in particular my environment and planning business, because there we have, you know, we have, you know, it's the the supply of diverse candidates is less. So botanists, you know, bat specialists people who understand fish, you know, a lot of the the field type work that we do in that practice um, just has a lower supply of diverse candidates. So that's an area where we're focusing. We're focusing in other aspects of the business as well, but we're looking at all aspects of diversity and we're looking at, at what the supply is for those roles, you know, in particular geographies and for particular types of expertise. And, and that's, that's ICF, you know, making a commitment and then me trying to, to support it and carry it out. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I would encourage a lot of folks here who might be listening are trying to figure out where they might have a role in addressing climate change, climate solutions. That's why they're thinking about clean energy. They're looking at solar and wind and storage. And I think that going and taking a look at the openings that are in ICF will give you a sense across the board, not just in Anne's department, but across the board, the multivariate ways that many, many different job roles contribute to our 
cultural understanding and our uh, sort of tactical ability to address climate change, not just from renewable energy perspective, but through all of the modeling and understanding the ecosystem that, uh, that what we're doing applies to. And one topic talking around ecosystem and technology, we obviously like to dig into technology here with guests on Suncast. The pace of innovation in the energy space is almost uh, hard to keep up with. And it seems to only be getting faster. How are changes in technology changing the way that your team works with clients in the energy sector in particular? So we design and implement energy efficiency, electrification, and other kinds of programs for utilities across both gas and, and, and electric utilities across the country. And the way that we do that and the, the needs that those utilities have both inside the programs and understanding the evolution of those programs, but also beyond the scope of those programs, as we talked about earlier with changes you know, in, in terms of the cost of solar and storage and how solar and storage can or cannot be combined with, say, electric vehicle programs and other kinds of customer and programs, the, the, the standards and the codes that are evolving and the, and, and the differential in the standard in the codes and standards across the country and what changes in those codes and standards means for the efficacy of the programs and also for our ability to deliver on the goals of the programs. You know, that's something that we really need to stay on top of. I think that the this proliferation of communication devices and how they can be used, you know, the the limits of those devices, the the privacy and cybersecurity related risks and aspects of those kinds of those those personal devices and how they play a role in energy management for you know for an individual for a company. Um, that's something that we as we implement these programs, we need to be on top of, and we need to understand how to use utilize our own technologies platforms. So that we can engage with customers on behalf of utilities in an effective and in a user-centric way. So there's a whole lot of clunky systems that are out there, but users are becoming more and more sophisticated and their expectations, the customers' expectations have, you know, because they're on their phones all the time, because they're ordering packages left and right. When they go to an energy marketplace, they want a sophisticated marketplace and they want to understand that, you know, they want feedback in a certain time frame. They want... They want information that five years ago they didn't necessarily expect, you know, in real time. So it also applies when you're talking about metering technologies, advanced meter technologies, and how the data analytics around customer usage can be utilized to design the programs, to make the programs more effective, and to make sure that the utilities can meet the requirements that they have from the regulators. Because that's, you know, at, at the end of the day, we need to be, you know, we need to be delivering for the utilities so that they can meet their requirements. I hear you mention utilities a fair amount, and it makes sense. They control the grid infrastructure. Are utilities the primary target client for ICF? So the group that I lead, as you said, is about 2,000 people. About half of that business is focused on private sector utilities. So, you know, investor-owned utilities, co-ops and, and municipal, but as well as, you know, other private sector energy companies. And then the other half is some combination of state and local, federal agencies, some international work, and other kinds of private sector, non-energy. So whether it's automotive or financial or other. But the work we've done in climate and energy, obviously that spans across all of those. We also do work on energy with, with trade associations and NGOs. Specifically with regards to utilities, is there a particular challenge or area of focus that utility customers continually come to ICF to help them solve? I think ICF since its founding, so it's been over 50 years now, I think we have been well regarded as relates to energy strategy. So understanding the complicated mix of fuels and technologies and understanding how those relate to financial markets and now integration of renewable technologies. I think that clients recognize the depth of expertise we have there. I think that in, if anything, the fact that we became very well known for program implementation and program design implementation, if anything, there might be clients who think, oh, well, you must be focused there more. Well, the strategy often leads to the design. And now, especially now at this inflection point for this energy, for the, for the energy markets that, that we're tracking, 
this inflection point where you have increasing renewable resources, you know, distributed resources coming on the grid, utilities facing increasing customer pressure for carbon reductions and, and you know, zero carbon future and things like that. You have, they're under a lot of pressure and the regulators obviously wanting to make sure that the customers aren't paying too much for their power and that they're looking out for vulnerable and, and, and low and moderate income customers. And so right now is a great time where for us to be able to help those utilities and to provide that strategic sort of overlay that then allows you to then go deep on, you know, designing electrification program, whether it's beneficial electrification for homes or whether it's, you know, electric vehicle fleets or whether it's, you know, customer programs around EVs or whatever. And then also thinking about how your traditional programs around lighting, you know, retail lighting or something like that relate to, you know, some of those more vulnerable populations. How can, how do resiliency plays in all of this and, and, providing regulatory policy support around these things, especially in states where the regulators have not really seen the value of more advanced or more sophisticated um, program designs. So it's a, it's a fun time to be doing this work. And I think the, the legacy of energy strategy work, I think, is, is pretty well known. We're known for that energy strategy work. We're also known for this implementation work. I think what's honestly interesting for me is like trying to make sure that the utilities understand that as they try to face carbon challenges, we can help them there too. I'm glad you brought that up. Actually, you know, we can't really talk about clean energy currently and certainly not hundred percent clean energy without essentially decarbonization, which is a big focus uh, of effort at CPS energy and many other utilities. You know, that conversation with the current change administration is just going to grow louder for lack of a better phrase for it. How are you thinking about and supporting that decarbonization effort within the work at ICF and how do factors like the new administration under uh, President-elect Biden play into the role that you have? Well, to say that we've been working on decarbonization for 20 years is not an, it's not an overstatement. And I personally have been. How we do the work has evolved, you know, from what I would say were pretty rudimentary spreadsheets. <laughs> we have a planning tool called COSA, CO2 site. And the, the support you know, the, the support structure that that, that that tool provides is basically it integrates what, what we talked about earlier, the best in class tools that are going to help us help a client, regardless of whether it's a city or whether it's, you know, a gas utility or whether it's some part of EPA, help that client sort of understand, okay, so these are the various levers that you have to consider when you're thinking about decarbonization crossing sectors, these are the kinds of assumptions to our earlier conversation that we that you can be that you'll have to make about the energy mix, the carbon, you know, carbon and electricity and things like that. And here's basically a framework for how you could build out scenarios around decarbonization. And then you what we need to do then is basically work with a client to understand well what are you trying to achieve? You know, by what year, what's the end goal and how can we help you analyze how you could get there. Looking at those priorities, whether those priorities are return on investment from a financial standpoint, is it clean energy jobs, which is definitely an area of interest? Is it is it social equity? Is it air quality and other sort of health benefits? So what do you see driving the, I'll say the, the majority of the decarbonization efforts right now? What makes it make sense for the utilities? So state and local commitments, obviously, are a driver. The federal conversations about climate and clean energy, especially under the new administration, regulatory activities. So regulators are becoming more active in this area. And then this acknowledgement by sort of the electorate, you know, Joe Public, where I would have gone to a, a cocktail party in 1997 and said CO2 and GHG and no one knew what I was talking about. Now people get it. And so I think that there's there's more of an acknowledgement that that this is something that we need to we need to acknowledge and we need to have a plan for how we're going to reduce emissions. So I think those are the drivers. You know, it's not every day that we get to listen to the wisdom that comes from decades of experience within an organization like ICF. And I'm so honored and grateful that Anne gave us some time here on Suncast today and gave us insight into the key drivers that are leading the leading organizations into the next decade plus of addressing climate change in massive scale. I was taking notes furiously, and I'm sure you were as well. You can find 
my thoughts on this interview with Anne and the many resources that were shared here linked in the show notes over at mysuncast.com. You can see the show notes link in the header right over there. And while you're at mysuncast.com, I would encourage you to check out some of the amazing activities that we have going on. Of course, we've announced it over on LinkedIn for those of you who are always following us over there. We've got an event next Wednesday, the 10th, with this past Tuesday's guest, Amanda Rico. Amanda and I are going to be doing a workshop free to you all about transferable skills, how to identify them, how to craft your perfect resume to transition your skills from oil and gas, high tech, wherever you are. It's very much a workshop where we will not only share with you how we work with our clients to do that. And Amanda is one of the experts that I lean on, obviously had her here on the show, but we'll also be looking at several of your resumes and helping you fine tune your transferable skills so that you can get a better sense of where you're going and how to get there and how to translate the terminology, the lexicon. If you're interested in that, you can find a link to that that workshop over at mysuncast.com on the homepage. You can also find a link and a post from my LinkedIn profile. You'd look for Nicholas Johnson or Nicholas Nico Johnson, as I think it's written in there. And I hope that you will tune in to that. I also hope that if you are in transition, you'll take a look at Mission Minded, our latest coaching program. You can find out more about it at the Work With Nico link on the website. We'll certainly talk about it more next week in our Wednesday Transferable Skills Workshop. So join us for the many different ways that we're trying to add skills, value, insight, and excellence to those who are trying to figure out where and how they can have the most value and the greatest impact, just like Anne showed in addressing climate change. That sounds like you hope you'll join us in this or one of our upcoming events. Thank you for taking the time to be here. Remember, you are what you listen to. So thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.